Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. Malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves, away from the guilty. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Adam Fitzgerald. Adam spent the past 12 years doing in-depth research into the events of 9-11. Much like George Bush, he has very little time for outrageous conspiracy theories. And indeed, I contacted Adam after reading an article he wrote criticizing many aspects of the 9-11 truth movement. Unlike George Bush, however, Adam believes that the US government's account of 9-11 is something of an outrageous conspiracy theory itself. And he defines himself as neither a truther nor a debunker, but rather a skeptic. In this interview, I'm gonna be asking him about his research, which is mainly focused on the geopolitics of 9-11, where he thinks the truth movement has gone right and wrong, and where the movement needs to go in the future. As Adam is a New Yorker, I started off by asking him about the day of 9-11 itself, as he was a witness to the event. On the day of 9-11, um, actually it was in my house. I lived in a, uh, on the border of Brooklyn and Queens um, in a small town called Ridgewood. And I heard from 1010 Winds that the plane had crashed into the World Trade Center, uh, the North Tower. Um, I initially had thought it was a, like a small Piper plane because we've had a, a small Piper plane crash into the World Trade Center uh, just a couple of years prior uh, under Bill Clinton's tenureship. So I, I, and it's very rare that you would get um, a plane crashing into a highway such as the World Trade Center. But when they built, just to add a little bit, when they built the World Trade Center, that's what they were fearing. Um, landlords at the uh, Empire State Building actually put out a large page ads of, of showing the dangers of what the World Trade Center could cause in the future. But um, as the news reports came out, they were saying that the plane was actually a passenger jet, but the reports were very uncertain at the time because very few people had actually witnessed a plane crash into the building. Um, but there were now reports coming in like 10 minutes later um, saying that the, the hole was very, very large. It couldn't have been a small plane. It was a large uh, plane, but they didn't know what type of jet it was. So I decided to go on my roof. And I, when I was going up, because we, I lived in a three-story apartment tenant, and it's very accessible to get to the roof um, in Brooklyn, Queens, or wherever, that's how New York is uh, aligned with the, with the tenements. Now, as I was getting up there, I was starting to see a, a large congregation of people from all about their rooftops hearing the, the news and, and whatnot. Now, you could see that the smoke is coming out I'm, I'm approximately maybe, um, I would say, 40 miles from uh, where the impact point is at okay. my house. And you could see, like, the smoke just trailing. I mean, big, huge bills of smoke. And at about, I'd say, 9.03, um, because that's when uh, Flight 175 hit the south. We saw the plane uh, crash into the South Tower. And um, I didn't know anything about terrorism. I, I was very ignorant about world affairs or foreign policy, anything like that. I mean, nothing. I, I just thought maybe, wow, this is uh, surreal. I didn't know it was a terrorist attack. I really didn't know what terrorism was, even though I was uh, 25 at the time. Um, but I didn't know, I was really that ignorant about everything uh, regarding that uh, plane, uh, that field of plane regarding foreign policy and stuff. But a couple of people were telling me on top of their rooftop saying it had been a terrorist attack. Mm -hmm and whatnot, but 
I went downstairs, actually. I went downstairs. I tried to um, talk to um, an aunt of mine who lived in Pennsylvania at the time. And then I was hearing screams about uh, 45 minutes later, an hour later. I couldn't tell you the exact time, but I was hearing yell, almost like he's shouting. So I went back on the roof and then other people were telling me that the the uh, the, North, the South Tower had collapsed. And that to me was rather shocking. And But the smoke was uh, such, it was covering miles at this point. I mean, you could see it for probably a hundred miles. It was that, uh, that extensive. But when the, I, we saw the, the North Tower fall, um, I was, uh, I didn't have any words really to say, but the, the smoke, I'll tell you, the smoke lasted for a month, uh, in the air. Uh, but it, it was devastating to see, but, um, even then at that prior time, even in the years, pro, uh, regarding after 9-11, I moved to Vegas in 2003. Um, I decided to come back to New York in uh, 2015, but I, myself, didn't invigorate myself with, with 9-11 until about 2006. Um, before that, I was in, I was truly uh, interested in monotheism, the study of it. Uh, but I, I already had a bias already because I was a, I was an atheist, but then I, I grew to be an anti-theist because I listened to uh, the discussions of Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, mm -hmm. uh, Daniel Dennett, um, Richard Dawkins. And, and I saw, I saw the field of religion in, in already, you know, a world, a biased worldview. That religion was all the same. It was negative and whatnot. But by 2006, I, I, I started to, I don't know why, I think it was my, I tried to learn about the Islamic religion. And that right away um, invigorated me to start uh, 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 studying 9-11. Um, but I couldn't tell you why. But I, I just did. It was, I knew the year was 2006, though. Okay, but, up to that point, you right to the kind of government narrative on 9-11. To tell you, you know, to tell you the truth, I didn't have any narrative whatsoever. Okay. I just thought, I just thought, but I, I did believe, I guess, I, to say that, yeah, it was, you know, radical Muslims and mm. hijacked the planes and crazy, but just the, the very bare basics regarding this issue. But, but I'm telling you right now, I was very ignorant uh, okay. on this issue. Um, but, um, in, but I, I wanted to, when I, when I switched from religion to 9-11, I, I wanted to um, implement a different strategy because I knew that by when I studied religion, I already had a preconceived bias, and it, that when any type of research worth their salt isn't going to have any type of bias whatsoever when, when regarding to real research, collecting information, data, what have you, and then much like a puzzle piece, collect the you know put the pieces together, mm -hmm. and you'll have a better picture. You're not going to solve uh, 9/11, but you can have a, a general idea of what's happening. Now, I wanted to do that. With 9/11, but I didn't want to have any preconceived biases, whether they be human constructs like religion, racism, politics. I never voted. I always thought it was a detriment, and um, I wasn't very religious. I'm atheist, but I'm not anti-theist anymore. And when it comes to racism, I had to um, modify my worldview regarding uh, people of different cultures and backgrounds. And we're all pre—even by birth—we're all predispositions and by these human constructs. Every single day was saturated by divisive constructs. It's just that you have to learn how to negate these constructs over time. And it, it really, it took a lot of time. Mm -hmm. But by, by 2006 and seven, I started uh, to read about uh, two people in, at the time, um, 
both of them were, one of them was Justin Raimondo from antiwar.com mm-hmm. and the other was Ryan Dawson. I, I just had, I, I don't know how I ran into him, but there was a video he did and he was in a white shirt and he was talking about um, uh, the Israeli apparatus involving uh, 9-11. And I thought that was profound at the time because I actually labeled him a, uh, a quasi-truther, somebody who was on the conspiracy theorized what well, Israel would be involved in how so but from from 2006 to say I'd say 2011 my research was pretty basic um I started uh watching a lot of documentaries but I said these doc- I said watching films and documentaries won't give you a deeper inlook I I saw that everybody generally was focusing on physics yeah and and I I don't know nothing about physics anyway but I said, why isn't anybody looking at like the, almost like the geopolitical aspect? And I, I, could, hard, I could tell you right now, it, it, maybe a handful of people were doing that. One of them was, and the two of them were, were the people I ran across, Raymondo and Dawson. But Raymondo um, just, uh, he didn't do much in the ways of videos and um, blogs or anything. I just had, he just had his antiwar.com site. But Dawson was the only one that I knew at that time that was really invigorating in the ge- geopolitical. Because at that time, 2006, seven, um, loose change started to come out. You had David Ray Griffin, um, Jim Fetzer, you had Alex Jones. Yeah. And I-, I knew about Alex Jones and Fetzer from years prior, and I, I didn't like them. So. Okay, so just so everyone knows, these are kind of big conspiracy um, YouTubers, radio hosts, who are right. very much focused on the conspiracy, centered around the collapse of the Twin Towers and the buildings and the controlled demolition theories. And that, that's right. what came to dominate in the 9-11 truth movement. Yeah, and then right. you're going down the more geopolitical route. So. Yeah, only, only because nobody was talking about it. And I yeah. thought maybe that the answers would be there because I had already ascertained that by, even if people believe that explosives were in the World Trade Center, which I don't discount, I, you know, for me, I don't care. It doesn't matter whether there was or there wasn't because if, you, if you're claiming that there was, I, I believe that you still have to enter the geopolitical arena anyway, sure, because sure. you have to, you, you're, you're going to assert that, yes, it was done either by foreign elements of either Israel or whatever, any, any, any foreign element with U.S. Uh, complicity, it's, you're still dealing with the geopolitics. Yeah. So I said, I'm going to delve into geopolitics. And that was about in the year 2009, 10, I really started invigorating and it took me to the present day and I and to tell you the truth um, I had no idea it would because it just branches out and mm-hmm. I had to study you know with with, with you know, I'm talking about Middle East affairs the US foreign lobby institutes of Saudi Arabia and Israel talk about religious fundamentalism the US intelligence agency foreign intelligence services um, these there's such a an enormous amount of information reading to do and reading of files and documents that are still locked away in the National Archives in the next 20 to 30 years. But it's just not for everybody because people get dismayed. It's just an overwhelming amount of information. Yeah. And I can understand that. I mean, I started reading about geopolitics, probably not in the same level of depth as yourself at about the same time. And I think the first year, I just remember feeling like I, at the end of it, I felt like I just floundered around not knowing where to look because it's just yeah. such an immensely complex web to step into. Um, but, but sort of staying close to 9-11, what kind of facts you've mentioned that you heard about an Israeli connection and that grabbed your attention, but what kind of facts would come up that would make you think differently from the kind of standard narratives that are being presented? What, what kind of geopolitical issues? Drew, drew? Uh, well, yeah, sure. Um, but 
I think at around 2012, I started hearing more about um, the intelligence field, uh, the intelligence service, like the CIA, for example, um, at the Pakistan ISI, the General uh, General Intelligence Directorate of Saudi Arabia. The, the, um, these institutions um, have more of a direct impact than what I previously had known, because I had no idea. Hmm. When I started delving into this area, it, it really started giving me a much more detailed look, a much more, uh, not a, a much more specific look, as, as opposed to like the general idea of, you know, the basics that everyone knows, that most everybody knows, that it was just uh, 19 Saudi men um, that hijacked four airliners and crashed them into the World Trade Pentagon Shanksville. That is just, when I talk about the basics, that's the basics. And that's the only agreement I have with somebody like the debunkers. Hmm. Right? Debunkers generally agree with that. But I'm not a debunker and I'm not a truther. I'm a skeptic. And, and when people say, well, what's the difference? There is a difference because debunkers generally, and this is just coming from my view. I, you yeah. know, you don't have to you know, take, take it with a grain of salt. Debunkers generally believe that um, the official story narrative, they don't, necessarily believe all of it because i won't paint a general picture but the majority of them from my experience believe the government narrative that it was just 19 men that they were islamic radicals they hijacked the planes they crashed them truth is, is a little bit more complex because as a movement general truth of movement they themselves within the movement have many competing um ideologies within that camp and, and they all contradict one another, or, or, or sometimes they'll work with one another. But they, it, because of this, there's no movement. And because there's so many competing ideologies, the real truthers, who I always claim that were the, the Jersey widows mm. who actually uh, created the 9-11 Commission by forcing them um, to spend money and, and investigate the issue, which then saw the, the, the House Senate uh, Select Committee that joint, uh, yeah, yeah. Just to be clear on that, there, there was initially um, either going to be no investigation, or the Bush administration was really dragging its heels on an investigation, and it was right. widows of the people who died in the towers who pushed for that and really got the investigations. That's correct, isn't right. it? Yeah, I and I I want to make this quite clear because I don't have like a a, a bias toward a view of with truthers, although I, I do hold them more culpable than debunkers. Debunkers, I. I generally, because they don't have like they don't have like a, a big voice when it comes to 9/11. They don't do films. They don't do videos generally. I very. I mean, if there's any, I like to see because I, I I'm a moderator in fair and civil debates 9/11, mm -hmm. and there's few debunkers I, I generally don't like because they're very abrasive toward uh, certain truthers and whatnot. Um, and but with truthers, the the main. I'm not talking about maybe the the, the listeners. I'm talking about the talking heads. Um, that hijacked that movement. And I always said that they, they're not real truthers, that these people are profiteers off the events of 9-11. People like um, Christopher Bolin or Rebecca Roth, Loose Change, uh, document, uh, Citizens Investigation Team. These people uh, created like a smokescreen for the real conspiracies that involve the finer details of geopolicy. These people don't delve into that. And they would rather much dismiss like, the idea of planes, for example, um, that no planes crashed anywhere. I I always have I have them in two specific groups. There are there are full no planers who believe that no hijacking airlines crashed anywhere. And then you have half planers 
Now, it's, it's the term that I created, but you have people that I, I've witnessed that you have people that think that, yes, hijacking airlines crashed in World Trade Center, but not at uh, Pentagon and Shanksville. I call them half players. Um, what they don't realize, and most of these people also believe that there was an Israeli apparatus that was involved in 9-11. What they don't do, what I, I, from my experience, what they, don't ex what they don't realize what they're doing by doing this is that they are eliminating the, the, one of the strongest links to the Israeli intelligence apparatus involving the 9-11 by dismissing not the plane, but what's in the planes and what's not in the planes. And I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've told like numerous people, and I've talked to um, numerous truthers uh, on, on numerous forums. I'm, I'm, I think I'm a member of 15 of them. Mm -hmm. But I, I even spoke to Christopher Bullard's wife. I spoke to James Perloff. I spoke to numerous people, not, not as many high level, but numerous people of the truth movement who pertain to this scenario. And I tell them, you just don't realize what you're doing. If you're going to eliminate planes and the hijackers, you're going to eliminate the strongest link for Saudi and Israeli involvement. And when I, when I say this is because um, two, of the, two of the pilots, now three of the four pilots, uh, were not Saudis. Hani Hanjour was a Saudi, but I don't think Hani Hanjour actually flew um, Flight 77. Um, when it comes to Flight 93, I don't think Ziad Jara flew that plane, but I do believe that Mohammed Atta and Marwan al Shay flew Flight 11175. If you want, I could dig a little bit deeper into that, uh, and or if I could do it right now, it's up to you. But, um, to, well, okay, well, what I'll do is, I'll, I know you've spoken in really great detail on okay. the presentation, so I'll link to those, okay, I'm just like, I think I'm just aware there's probably people watching with a variety of levels of knowledge about 9-11. I don't, I don't want to go right, too deep fine. specific points, yeah, yeah. so that's, yeah. that's great, yeah. Um, okay, uh, but yeah, you, do you want me to, to uh, elaborate a little bit or do you want me to go off to another? Well, uh, just, just to, I suppose with what you're saying about the truth movement, I'm, cu you, I'm curious as to what you encounter because there seem to me to be ideas put forward. I suppose when, when the view or one's faith in the government narrative falls apart, okay, right. that suddenly like anything becomes possible, right? And well, why shouldn't right. there be holographic planes? And you start, oh, right. why shouldn't the towers have been taken down by laser weapons from outer space or something? Right. Um, I'm interested in, because a lot of the more mainstream journalists have encountered the truth movement and seen it as a kind of cult, okay? As a kind of people who are really locked in their own paradigm. Um, and this is a way of like dismissing any critical, criticism of the government report of 9-11 in a sense. Yeah, right. um, but I am interested, because I'm interested in cults, right? And I think that any ideology can form a cultish edge to it. It's right. irrespective of what it is. So uh, what's your encounter been in that sense of the truth movement? Do you, do you, I'm not in any way trying to disparage the whole thing, but do you find any sort of cultish element in it which stick hardcore to kind of extreme and hard to substantiate claims? Yes. In yeah, but I think you bring up a great point. I, this is not to disparage gen the whole movement in general, and that and I think that's important because if if we because the uh, when it comes to the the media narrative of claim the truth movement as some kook or just some crazy conspiracy cult, mm. you, what you just said before is true. We now disparage questioning the government narrative of nine eleven. The irony is is that people within that movement have made cultish ideas now. Like I said, there were disparate. There were certain groups within the movement itself. There's, there's many 
groups within the movement, but some of these groups, uh, group movements, uh, groups are cultish in that, in that sense. It's, and I can't specify enough, no planerism, this idea of no planes has really taken off. And I, I'm, I'm I just came out on Facebook. I wasn't a social media person. When I started, um, uh, becoming more open uh, on social media, I, I can't tell you how shocked that I am that we have a lot of people that don't believe that planes crashed anywhere that day. It, it's almost, it's absurd to think that we have people like that. But when you have talking heads like, um, well, I, I blame Thierry Mason. Thierry Mason in 2002 wrote a book, Le Pencate, and he put forth the idea that um, because of the few pictures that, that that existed of showing the damage of the Pentagon, including the picture of the sea ring, where it shows like a small like hole hmm. that looked like a missile uh, hit it, but that wasn't the, that wasn't the entry point. That was the exit point, and right. that was the fuselage which crashed through. Now he ran away with this idea because he put it in his book, and he says that nobody saw the plane. It was a missile by an, a cruise ship uh, in the in the Atlantic. Um, I, I didn't read the book. I'm just giving you a general idea of what he's saying from what I heard and on online when I've read. But I mean, that took off because then you had David Ray Griffin that sort of believes that. Um, Jim Fetzer ran away with it. Alex Jones even purported. And then all of a sudden, um, there was a document called In Plain Sight, which was produced by Dave Von Cleese, who I've spoke to on Facebook as well. Um, they were the first people to purport that in a documentary. Then Loose Change, I think, came out months later, and that documentary just exploded. I mean, people, millions of people watched it. And I've always said that that was the turning point for Truthers, because it, it at that point, the Truther movement still had a little bit of respectability with them. They, they really had um, reputable people trying to question the narrative, uh, albeit they were mostly phys- uh, uh, look, uh, concentrated on the physics. Hmm. But after loose change, it was like right. it took off into right. another, and then it branched out into like uh, different competing ideas, which is like this quasi thing. And then it's it becomes represented that way. So I heard the you know the podcaster um, interviewer John Gold, who's I think he might have coined yeah. the term the truth movement. Uh, I'm yeah. not sure, but I think he did that. And he had the fellow on who wrote the book. I've just his name just left my head, but he wrote the book amongst the truthers. Okay, where he. Um, described the truth movement as a very cultish thing. Um, but John Gold pointed out to him, okay, you mentioned the documentary Loose Change 16 times. You mentioned the documentary Press for Truth, which people would think was a much more erudite 9-11 documentary, zero times. You mentioned Alex Jones 20 times, but you mentioned Peter Dale Scott zero times. Okay, in, in this contrast, how the more out there elements have then attracted media attention and come to be seen as, as what the movement is. Right. The, by the way, the person who wrote the book Among the Truths is Jonathan Kay. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, think, I think he actually uh, was in like a certain truth or movement or something like that for a year. And he wrote the book or something like that. I didn't yeah. read the book. Yeah, I just saw it. Oh, okay. And and I think he wrote uh, an article in the New York Times in 2010-11. I could be wrong about one of those years. But uh, around that time, he wrote a, a long page article in the New York Times. Um, I, I think after Loose Change, it, when it branched out into all these competing ideas and it took off, these people like Rebecca Roth, Christopher Bolin, um, was on, uh, Jay, uh, William, James Perloff is another, I would say, Citizens Investigation Team, um, it, it, they became more louder in their, in their um, abrasiveness. They were more 
aggressive. And, and the media took notice quickly, right away. And when they started writing books and they started doing documentaries and giving lectures, of course, now you have more people tuning in. And when I'm talking about more people, I'm talking about defensors, not necessarily debunkers, truthers. Um, I'm talking about fences, people who may have like an inclination or curiosity about 9-11. And it's, it's much like if you saturate the field with a bunch of nonsense and you pepper it with a little bit of like factual information mm -hmm. and a person like walks amongst us and he sees this, um, he's going to come across more disinformation than he is with actual information. And I think that's what's happening here. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim these people are truthers by any means because they, their, their, um, their worldview is hypocritical to the word truth itself. And with these ideas and general information that they purport, they do not go forward. They, they specifically will just stand like a standstill almost. They don't like this with this information, which should be a shocking revelation to the global world itself. Um, this information is just generally in a stagnant state of mind, but they don't lose the, the, um, the people behind it. I mean, Bolin just wrote another book and I heard it's number one on, on Amazon and, um, Rebecca Roth, I think wrote three books and it did well. Um, and th these people, if they ever change their narrative, if they, if they learn something, the real research, these aren't real research, by the way, but if they actually invigorated the true meaning of research, and they altered the narrative of no plane because Bolin doesn't believe, let's just say Flight 77, because he doesn't believe Flight 77. If he actually believes and tells people in a, in a lecture in the future that Flight 77, he's going to lose half his followers because that's what he's worried about. And I think that's what they're worried. They're either worried about profit, um, popularity, uh, go for example, I'm not going to go forward and say that these are government shields. I have no proof of that. I just think these people are more sure. worried about Profits and popularity. So let, let's move then from problems in the truth movement to if you were to picture me as someone who's heard a bit about 9-11, I don't know too much, but I've got a few bullet points of things that I think uh, don't make sense about the day. And I was to come to you and say, Adam, what, what about these? Um, as the things that really should give reason for people to look again and consider cover up or conspiracy, okay? So on my list, I think the thing, the first thing, and I choose it as first because I hear a lot of people talk about this as the thing that made them think, oh, there's something up here, was the idea that there was um, foreknowledge, okay? The, the right. Bush knew and Bush lied about knowing, and we can demonstrate that. And there's the, the memo of the August 6th memo is kind of a famous example, but I think there's lots of examples going back maybe to the mid-90s of... Um, foreknowledge of the attacks of um, Muslim hijackers of planes right. potentially flying them into buildings and this was something that um, George Bush and Condoleezza Rice said oh we had, we had no idea so could, could right. you speak to the foreknowledge element a little bit yeah it, it starts in 1995 with the, um, uh, the intelligence field finally uh, realizing that there was a large-scale plot before them it was called the Bajenka plot and um, U.S. authorities knew about the Bajinka plot, uh, which was involving 11 airliners, um, uh, which were going to take off from Asia, different points of Asia, um, flying over the Pacific into the United States. And the operation was that Ramzi Youssef, who was involved in the 1993 World Trade Center bomb, um, was going to implement uh, 11 timing bombs uh, by Casio Watch underneath the seats where the, fus where the, um, the fuselage and the gas Right, so he was going to have them all simultaneously 
blow up within two to three minutes of each time and have them all blow up with world over the Pacific. And what he wanted was like uh, over 5,000 people dead. He wanted a mass casualty, which probably would have been bigger than 9-11 itself if this were to materialize. But the operation was found out um, uh, while they were making bombs uh, in um, the Philippines uh, in a motel room between him, Ramzi Yusuf, and Abdul Hakim Murad, who was a co-conspirator of his. He, by the way, Abdul Hakim Murad was also a former pilot who trained in the United States in Afghanistan. Um, while they were making the bomb, the, uh, the chemicals blew up in the sink and they had to flee. But Ramzi Yusuf had left his laptop behind and on the laptop was the operation for Pacheco plant. He orders Abdul Hakim Murad to go back and he, he actually goes back and he's um, seen by the Philippine National Police and the fire department, they give chase, he falls down, he's captured. But after um, approximately 71 days of, of intense interrogation, he finally cracks under um, the, uh, the Philippine National Police Director, Rodolfo um, uh, Mendoza. And Mendoza doesn't torture him. He actually goes up to him and he gives him McDonald's. And because of this simple act of kindness, uh, Abdul Hakim Murad actually um, gives up the, the whole Pajaka plot, gives up uh, um, the co-conspirators of the plot, but he doesn't give up Ramsey Yusuf. He actually doesn't name him. He says he doesn't know his name. And, um, but Mendoza believes him. Mm-hmm. Now, Mendoza takes this information, and we're talking about mid-1995. He then tells uh, authorities in the United States, FBI, he tells them of the plan that, listen, we have a terrorist here, Abdul Kimrod, um, uncovering a plot involving airplanes um, that are going to crash uh, into the, uh, over the Pacific. But they knew then, I'm talking about 1995, because you bring up a point that Condoleezza Rice and the Commission said they had no idea planes, but, but I'm just giving you, I'm going to give you more examples. Um, I would say that um, probably by 1996 and 1997 and 1998, those three years, key years, the CIA and the FBI was getting incremental information um, overseas, by the way, um, regarding um, the Bin Laden issue station, which was built in 1996, uh, which was involving the CIA, the Directive, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the FBI. Uh, any information uh, regarding abroad was coming home. And the CIA and the FBI wouldn't share this information, but they were getting information that involving that Al-Qaeda and different terrorist organizations abroad were, were planning um, to use planes as weapons at this time. Now, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to give you um, a picture, a slow-moving picture that the intelligence agencies knew. Now, if, if you're going to say that State Park didn't know, that means they didn't know what the information was coming from the CIA and the FBI. And we're talking about six years prior to the event. So, yeah, when it comes to foreknowledge, yes, they knew that planes were going to be used as weapons as far back as 1995. And the State Department either, well, I think Condoleezza Rice perjured herself, for sure. But she wasn't alone. Um, During the Joint House inquiry, uh, Colonel McKinney, Greg McKinney, actually, I think, perjured himself as well. uh, He's from, he was one of the, he's the Major General of NORAD. He states that we had no idea that planes would be used. And he almost uh, add, uh, in the same sentence as Condoleezza Rice. But they, it's like they knew. They, these intelligence share the information with the Pentagon, with the State Department. It's, it's almost like they're, uh, even though they're different agencies, they share the information coming out. About, but between the CIA and the FBI, they are very notorious um, sharing information just within themselves. And that's only because yeah. there's different competing agendas 
um, one is one one agency may want to be the primary agency of making the arrest or the bust, or they may want to implement um, uh, spies within the agency to get more intelligence regarding the deeper issues sure. of Al-Qaeda. Well, that well that brings us on then, if you're okay to hop over to this, to the, the next kind of bullet point I had was the intelligence agencies, sure. and I mean I think there's a lot of areas you could go with this with whistleblowers like Robert Wright and Sybil Edmonds at the FBI. But the one yeah. maybe I would pick to focus on would be the goings-on at Alex Station, the Bin Laden unit, um, where the CIA, um, my understanding of this, they knew that two of the hijackers were in the country uh, for some considerable time. The standard thing to do would be to pass this information on to the FBI. Uh, they didn't do that. And this never came out then in the commission or in any substantial way afterwards. Could you, could you explain that whole, because that's yes. a big issue, isn't it? it it's, it's a major player uh, for 9-11 itself, and it often goes undiscussed, actually. Mm. Um, the, the Bin Laden issue station, which was codenamed the Alex station, um, because of uh, Michael Shuri, who was the, the CTC director at the time, um, named after his son, Alex. So they, named, they codenamed it Alex station, but... It was a station which was a unit of like the CIA and the FBI to gather information, intelligence, metadata regarding Osama uh, bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Um, we're talking about information that was gathered abroad, but um, the station was uh, in Washington, D.C. So they used the information gathered by intelligence, uh, CIA operatives and FBI operatives that were abroad um, to, to almost have a virtual station within Washington, D.C., which they didn't have but they were taking Bin Laden seriously. He was more than a financier at the time. He was now becoming a major player according to the previous uh, cables and reports by the CIA. So they, was, they wanted to follow him more closely. The head of the director of the operations of Alex Station was David Cohen. Um, he was in charge of the CTC station who named Michael Scheuer uh, in charge of Alex Station at that time. But, Alex, uh, but, uh, but just to add, Michael Scheuer was uh, released in 1999 mm -hmm. and by a Kofor Black. At that, that, and that time, Richard Blee was the CTC director um, under George Tenet. Uh, he was implemented by George Tenet at the time. Now this information um, regarding bin Laden and other, uh, intel, uh, other extremist groups, there was three, but they, they found two. Now the information that was collected uh, was gathered by Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Shaper. He was one of the units involved in, in Alex Station. And he uh, gathered enough information on two um, terrorist organizations that were operating um, externally and internally. And two of them were the Brooklyn Cell, which was the, the cell operated by the blind Sheikh Omar Abdel-Rahman, who was responsible for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And the Hamburg Cell, which was just operating in 1998, 1999 under Mohammed Atta. Now, according to, to Colonel Anthony Schaefer, later, many, many years later, he states that they, he collected uh, two terabytes of information. He created a, a large chart that had um, uh, linkage between bin Laden, um, Ayman al-Zawahiri, um, and the al-Qaeda, Abu Sayyaf, and the Brooklyn cell. And it, it was a huge chart. It was destroyed. Um, it was ordered destroyed by the Pentagon. And actually, Schaefer states in, the, um, in an interview which I think Fox at the time, he states that he was forced to destroy all the data that uh, uh, he collected. And because he tried showing this to an unnamed senator, uh, I don't know if his name ever came out, but he tried to show it and the senator actually said, don't show me this information, I'm not allowed to know. 
the Pentagon then revoked uh, Mike, uh, Anthony Schieffer's security clearance and, um, and uh, absconded him from not uh, testifying in the 2006 House Select Committee, which was run by all inspectors. And that committee was actually enforced on by um, Republican Kurt Weldon of Pennsylvania. Uh, he took up uh, the issue of the Anthony Schaefer uh, incident because Schaefer wanted to come out and wanted to testify mm -hmm. and share the information with the public. He was he, he was basically mouthed, I mean, he was forced not to say anything. Um, he was held in suspension so he wouldn't have um, benefits, like health benefits for his children. So they didn't fire him and they didn't, um, um, I guess, uh, imprison him. So they just suspended him for years. So he was like in a state of state of like this oblivion that he couldn't speak on the issue. Now, what could be the reason for that? Plausible um, reasons. Right. I, 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 I hate to use speculation because I'm not in speculation. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not asking you to speculate on a reason, but just on the broad scope. Okay. If I, I, right. But I mm -hmm. would, I would say this much. I think that they were, that they had invested interest, especially with two, it's two individuals, Khalid Al-Minar and Nawaf Hamzi. And it was known that they were inside the United States, but they were following them way before that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's come out that they were following them since the Kuala Lumpur Al-Qaeda meeting in, in, uh, in Malaysia in, in uh, 1999. Uh, and then they entered the United States in 2000. The meeting took place in January 5th, 2000, but they were following them in 1999. And according to William Binney, who is a former crypto linguist at the NSA, he states that the NSA actually had metadata, email, phone calls, um, regarding most of the the players that were involved in 9-11, not all, but most of them. Um, and he says that this information was collected as far back as 1998, but that the NSA never read the data because they didn't have the manpower, um, if you want to believe that. That's what he mm -hmm. states. But I think that the reason why was because that if the FBI actually knew that uh, Khalid Al-Mihar and Nawaf Hamzi were inside the United States as early as 2000, that they would have arrested them because they were involved in the USS coal bombing, uh, the Yemeni coal bombing in, in, in 1999. Um, but um, but I'm, I'm sorry, in 2000, I mean, uh, in uh, 1999. But they were involved in the, te in the, the embassy bombing in 1998. Mm -hmm. So they would have had to put them on a watch list or revoke the, because they applied for visas and they got in anyway. And the irony is that um, Khalid al-Midar later on in 2001, at, at late, 2001 in June, he goes to Yemen, back to his parents' house. And at this point, it's well known throughout the CIA, there was, I think, a, 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 approximately 50 agents within the CIA knew that he was inside the United States at this point. And that's a lot. That's a lot of people. Yeah. He's not on, even on a watch list. And, it, and this was brought up um, in the Joint House Inquiry by Carl Levin. He actually um, in, um, is interviewing um, these two unnamed agents, one each from the FBI, say he actually states that how was it possible that Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Hamzi, who were involved in both the USS Cold Bomb and the 1998 embassy bombings in Tanzania and Kenya, how were they not even on, just on the watch list? No, ne never mind that um, they were on a, a wanted list, but not even on a watch list. And it, and that could lead to conspiracy itself, like, oh, they were either the CIA involved. No, I just think that certain elements within the CIA wanted to gather more information about them to the point where it, it obstructed um, the FBI from doing just right, which would, they would have arrested them. But, but then again, at the same time, 
Khalid Al-Minhar Nawaf Hamzi in the year in January 2001 were living with an FBI informant. His name was Abdus Sadr Sheikh, mm -hmm. but then he come out two years later. But Abdus Sadr Sheikh actually never related the information to the FBI that he was living with Khalid Al-Minhar Nawaf Hamzi until many many years later. So then that that, that tells you either either he. Um, I, I can't, I, I don't know what the reason was for him not informing the FBI. Maybe he didn't think they were up to, to no good because he states that by, while living with them, he, he, they didn't tell him of the plans, of course. But, but uh, it, it's just, it's too much coincidences that show that the intelligence apparatus um, involving Israeli or the U.S. were too closely involved with um, certain 9-11. Uh, certain sure. And there was a Saudi connection. Right, a connection to Saudi right. That, that's right. Because we, right, to hear, I, I don't want to interrupt, but Khalid al-Minar and Nawaf al-Hamzi were met by two Saudi nationals yeah. as soon as they were inside the United States. And two of them were uh, Omar al-Bayoumi, who was a, uh, a delegate within the uh, Saudi kingdom, and Omar Basnan, who's a little bit more of a radical. Um, he actually used to uh, uh, um, brag that uh, he met bin Laden, that he espouses Wahhabist doctrine views, that he hated the West. But these people had direct links within the hierarchy of the kingdom themselves. I mean, um, Omar Balayoumi's wife was getting um, funding from Haifa bin Faisal, who's the wife of um, the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia, um, um, Bandar bin Sultan, who was nicknamed Bandar Bush by George Bush himself. So while you could say that um, the funding that was given to um, the Saudi nationals who gave it to the hijackers, you could say that, well, the Nash, the, the, like Bindar bin Sultan um, may not have known this, but when the 9-11 Commission interviewed him, it's, re it's fully redacted. In fact, you can go look in the National Archives and see that the whole, in mm. came it's redacted. But if, if he didn't have any complicity, so to speak, um, why is the interview redacted? Sure. So, so just to summarize, just to keep everything on the table, okay, so the, what, one right. interpretation, I think this is what's given by Richard Clark, the security advisor who brought attention to this issue, is that the CIA were trying to gather more data or flip the two of them. And then, of course, if you take the more conspiratorial interpretation, it's because someone was helping them, facilitate them doing, carrying out 9-11, right. right? I just want to have all the options on the table right. for the moment. Yeah. And also to mention, this is like, one example of many whistleblowers and intelligence failures we could go into that were never fully investigated. Right. Um, I'm, I'm happy if you want to say anything more on the whole intelligence thing, but I'd like to move on to um, NORAD on the day. It's another major sure. element yeah. and bullet point I would have on the list of um, things that people bring up for two levels again. Um, either there was a cover-up that was never investigated um, because of NORAD giving contradictory accounts of their actions on the day or this issue of the war games that were going on i know of like several um live flying exercises uh, that i think everyone is very surprised when they hear that were going on on 9-11 to do with hijacking and there's something just like very surprised i know that time to time there are hijacking exercises so it's not like this was the only time it ever happened in history but it strikes people often as the most amazing coincidence that there were hijacking exercises going on at the time the actual hijackings took place. My understanding um, of this is that the commission concluded it was a coincidence. It is not the case that the hijackers knew about this and took advantage of it. And the NORAD um, 
Richard Myers, General Richard Myers testified that the hijackings had not impeded the, their responses that day. But people straight away were asking, well, were NORAD responses uh, slowed down? They seemed to be slow. So what do, I'll, I'll ask you what you make of those various points. Um, NORAD responses on the day, whether NORAD were honest or they acted to cover up their action, and whether this um, coincidence of exercises with the actual hijackings uh, would lead you to think coincidence or conspiracy? Um, I, I, would, I would submit to you that uh, you've had, uh, well, the, first of all, the exercises themselves, a lot of people tend to uh, misconstrue. There was, there was a couple, uh, you had actually had Vigilant Guardian, which was a State Department exercise involving um, Russian military bombing American cities. Mm -hmm. You had Vigilant Guardian, which was a NORAD exercise involving, um, uh, I think it was uh, another Russian exercise. I can't, I, I, I'll, I, I can't detail that, but free. But the hijack exercise that was running on 9-11 was called Almalgaman Virgo. And you had two of them. You had Almalgaman Virgo number one, Almalgaman Virgo number two. Amalmagan Virgo number two was a hijacking exercise involving uh, planes being hijacked by radical Islamists. And this was a, um, a, a this was a, 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 an exercise that was run um, in mid-2001 and on the day itself, actually. So uh, I think Amalmagan one was the, was the exercise that was running in June 1st. I could be wrong about the month. Um, and Amalmagan number two was the, was the exercise running on the day itself. This was brought up in the Joint House inquiry, um, the question by Richard Benveniste, who was a commission member on, on the Joint House, and he actually um, um, was interviewing, uh, I think, Gen a, a General uh, Larry Arnold, General Larry Arnold of, uh, of NORAD, and he states that um, were these exercises anyway impeding the defense interceptors of, um, on 9-11? And it came out in the conclusion of the 9-11 Commission that Lee Hamilton states, and it's in the commission before you read it, um, he states that he admits that because of these exercises, they impeded mm -hmm. uh, the, the necessary timing to intercept the jets. But according to Colonel Alan Scott, who was retired, he, he presented a chart um, in the Joint House Inquiry showing you, a, 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 if anyone uh, is watching this, I really uh, would recommend watching this um, uh, testimony by Alan Scott because he gives you the complete timeline, right down to the second, of NORAD's response. And you could see that the FEA was late in determining whether the planes were hijacked because according to the FEA, the first hijack, uh, the first impact of the tower is at 8.57, but they don't report um, American Airlines hijacked until like 10 minutes later. So they're getting the information incrementally slowly because the transponders are off, they're not getting... Um, information from the pipe. So that information is being relayed to NORAD. But NORAD itself, I think, contradicted themselves multiple times in the 9-11 Commission. And the reason for it was because either Richard Myers had a different timeline than, say, the FAA, which was true, um, by a, just even just by like three or four minutes. But that's all you need because um, the, intercepted, the first intercepted jet into Manhattan following 11 was only five minutes behind. But I mean, that's that's a word, that's a long mouth. You may think that that's not that's not enough. I mean, but that's a very short time. But it, but that's an eternity, according to NORAD. That's an eternity because these planes could go exceeding like six hundred miles an hour, and they're they're coming from Otis Air Force, ain't very far at all. 
but because the exercise would be a run and they were just up in the Northeast. So they get a lot of planes that were away from the points of impact in Washington, DC and in New York. And by the time Otis responds to American airlines at 846, uh, the impact was, um, it was just too late. And by the time they didn't even know that flight 77 was hijacked until after an impact at the Pentagon. But I mean, I think, I think, um, what you said before about Richard Myers was right. I think there was a little bit of fudging going on there. Now, that too also leads to people believing there's a conspiracy. Either they were allowing the attacks to happen, which I, I can make a case for, but I think also because I'm a let it happen type of person instead of making it happen, like yeah. creating it. Okay. I, but um, I, I, would, I would probably, because I don't have like direct evidence showing you that saying, hey, Norad's saying that, they're sure. allowing this to happen. You're not going to get that, right? Yeah. I could probably make a really good argument that certain elements within the State Department, especially the State Department, not so much the Pentagon, I think the State Department allowed this to happen. And because the what came after 9-11, I think is is a, abundantly worse than what 9-11, what happened on 9-11 itself. Um, and that, but that's another, that's a different story. I mean, I could get into that in another podcast if you want, but, sure. but yeah, but with NORAD, you're, I think you're right. I mean, there was a bit fudging going on there between Richard Myers, Larry, and uh, Larry Arnold and, um, uh, General, um, McElroy, um, uh, in the joint house inquiry. But, but just to, just to, I want to make this clear. I don't think the Pentagon made this happen, I, but I think that certain elements allowed it to happen. Okay. That's an interesting distinction. I might come back to that. I think I've got one more bullet point, maybe one, sure. of, one and a half more bullet points, and then I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, so we've touched upon this already, but the role of foreign, foreign intelligence agencies, okay, and I'm thinking now what I know about this, okay, is um, particularly funding of uh, Muhammad Atta was attributed to the ISI, the Pakistani right. intelligence agencies, the transfer of $100,000 um, to him, that I think the head of... Pakistani intelligence was in the United States on the day of 9-11 and then he left again and there's all this uh, connection between the ISI and the Taliban but Pakistan remained a firm ally okay um, in a way that if the same connections had been present with Iraq say uh, it would have been a very different story so that the US government was fishing for any connection it could find of Iraq but ignoring connections to Pakistan We've already touched on Saudi Arabia, and then the other country that springs into mind is Israel and the spy networks um, they were operating in the United States. There's this sort of strange story of the five dancing Israelis got a lot of media attention, but that is beneath that, there's a perhaps more interesting story of um, Israeli spy networks. So what's your take on that, on the, on, on the involvement of foreign intelligence agencies but also the reticence to really investigate that. Why wasn't there a war with Pakistan or a war with Saudi Arabia afterwards? What, what, what's your take on the whole foreign element to it? Well, State backing. Yeah, yeah to, to address your initial point about uh, Pakistan, I say, uh, Dr. General, uh, his name was Ahmed Mahmoud, actually. He had breakfast on the day of 9-11 with, um, uh, at that time, Director of CIA, Porter Goss, and Bob Graham, who later would chair the... Uh, Joint House Inquiry as well. He was the head chairman. Um, they were actually, incidentally, they were talking about the, uh, the uh, Osama bin Laden issue involving the terrorist attacks. And then I, I believe they were just, just mere blocks away when uh, American Airlines impacted the, uh, the North Tower. 
but that's a, it's an uncanny irony, but it just, it just, it's too close for comfort for a lot yeah, of people. Absolutely. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Right. But um, um, when it comes to the intelligence agencies involving like Pakistan and Israel and the close relationship with the United States, I think with Pakistan, it's more of a, just a, a strictly intelligence because the Pakistan ISI is probably the oldest and largest intelligence agency in the world, more so than say um, the Mossad, the CIA, or um, um, the intelligence agency up in uh, Russia. What's I forgot the name. FSB. Yeah, right, right, excuse me, right. Um, but, but the Pakistan ISI is extensive, it's huge. And they have a direct link with numerous extremists in Pakistan, the Jamaat e Islamiyah, um, the numerous madrasas that, that propagated this new jihad that helped, that helped shape the 1979 uh, Afghan war. Um, but with Israel, it's a much more a closer, direct, much more convenient um, because of our direct relationship with Israel in regards to democracy, if you want. Um, but it, this is a much more extensive because Israeli operatives that were involved um, inside the United States uh, predicate even 9-11. They were involved in the 1993 bombing. Um, one of the, uh, uh, when, when Mohammed Salome, just to give you a short example, Mohammed Salome was on the Ryder truck uh, agreement rental, but he used the apartment and the, the name on the apartment was Josie Hadass, who was a known Mossad operative. But by the time they raided the apartment, he was gone. And they never investigated that issue anyway. In regards to 9-11, the, there was three uh, operations going on involving the Israeli intelligence agency. And that was um, the drug ring that was involved in selling ecstasy that was busted by uh, the FBI and Joint Terrorism Tax Force in New York. It was a large-scale ecstasy ring. And this is, by the way, the drug um, funding that comes from intelligence agencies like the CIA with the opium products in, 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 um, in uh, I, I, Iraq. Um, the, the Kandahar province, I mean, the, uh, the Helmand province, which is the largest operation of poppy field in the world. The drug money that's operated from that funds the, like the black operations. CIA just, uh, for example, CIA can't go to the House Senate Collect Committee and say, hey, we need uh, $5 billion to mm. operate this black operation. It doesn't work like that. So where do they get the funding from? It comes from drug sales. Okay, yes. that's just one. The, now, there was another operation involving moving systems. The moving systems that were involved in the in regards to them were the urban moving systems, classic international movies, and white glove movies. They were all interlinked, by the way, because when they pulled over, um, when the, the New Jersey State Troopers pulled over the white truck that was on the be on the lookout early in the day for 9/11, when they pulled over the truck, they they saw a list, and on the list was phone numbers to all the different moving companies that were involved in Florida, New Jersey, New York, classic internationals, white glove. There was more. There was a lot more. I just can't think of the names right now, but. Um, you also had um, the Israeli art students. Now, shooters tend to mix this up with the, the art students that were involved in the gelatin bee. I'm sure you heard of it. The, the art students that were like taking these weird pictures in the World Trade Center oh, months yeah. prior. You know, they were called gelatin bee. They weren't Israeli. They were Austrian. In fact, you can find them on YouTube. They, they have a website. That they, they even wrote a book. It's very obscure. It's about $1,000. It's a picture of the, the, um, of the World Trade Center. It's a big book. It's a huge book. Um, but they're not the Israeli. The, the Israeli um, uh, movie art students were actually just like these arts. It was a huge ring. It was the biggest, bigger than the drugs and the, uh, the movie company. It involved like 300 people. 
and they were selling art to like the the the, the, the DA to people, the State Department, the FBI, the intelligence apparatus. Now what? Now supposedly in the art, it was cheap art, but supposedly it was like this, um, this painting that would give up like a, a sounding vibration. Nearby would be like a uh, either Israelis in, in like a van or in a in a house nearby, apartment nearby, rented nearby, whatever. And through through the vibrations, they would hear like what was going on in the personal homes of these people. So they would get the vibrations off the painting itself, and they would it would it would it would intercept sound that was coming from inside like the the apartments themselves because they weren't going to like the State Department, uh, the businesses, whatever. They were going to like the homes of these people. Okay. Now where where they got this information from, I don't know, but that's how they would learn like detailed information involving like the DA, the FBI, or uh, numerous intelligence agencies in the world. This was outlined in a book called um, The Star and the Sword, by, written by Wayne Madsen. He goes into detail. It's a good book. And, he, and it shows like the Israeli and Saudi narrative. Other books wouldn't go into. Now, a lot of people think that Wayne Madsen is anti-Israeli, he's an anti-Semite, or he's uh, Islamic phobic for writing the book. He caught a lot of flack with it. But I would recommend the book. I'm, I'm really strict when it comes to like information. I don't read just about anything. But that book goes into great detail about the Saudi and Israeli narrative. He actually names names. And um, if it was like any type of uh, conflict or whatever, he would have gotten long sued by these people. But he names names and, he, and, and, and the people that were involved with the art. It was an extensive wing. And it was, this was, it was only brought up by Carl Cameron. He actually did an expose in 2002 on Fox, of all people, Fox. And he did a three-part series involving the art students themselves and the spying that was going on with the Amdocs investigation. Amdocs was a, um, uh, an intelligence bureau that would gather like information and that was involved with the White House and they were, in, they were spying on the White House. And, but that information was suppressed and, and Israeli um, uh, intelligence abroad actually shut down that, uh, that broadcast from any further because he wanted to make right. it a bigger he wanted to make it extend. He wanted to do like a, I think he said a 10 part series, but it stopped at three. But it just goes to show you why um, the intelligence agency apparatus, um, because Israel actually gives information about the attacks much prior, but the, the information is very vague. Mm -hmm. This information that they were following the hijackers around because they moved them. Actually, they used cl classic international movies from Florida to move. Um, Muhammad Atta and uh, 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 Abdul Aziz Al-Amari from, from Florida to, to New Jersey, actually. So they used it. But it just goes to show you, if you don't want to believe that they were intimately involved, these people are just, like I said before, these people are just way too close to home. And they were directly, uh, like, living just a block away. Because Ada and Al-Amari and Marwan Al-Shayi moved to Hollywood, Florida, because they, they actually trained with Huffman Aviation. And the, intel the Israeli movers were one block away. So if you don't want to say that, oh, they were indirectly involved, look, it's just way too much coincidence to show you that, yes, the intelligence apparatus, Israeli intelligence apparatus, were involved in uh, following these people around. And on the day of 9-11, just to elaborate just a little mm -hmm. bit, yeah. I know you got questions more. No, it's fine. Urban, Urban Moving Systems was headed by, uh, managed by Dominic Suter. Um, but when the Israelis got arrested and they were held at one police plaza for 71 days, they failed all their polygraphs. And they, they found that, that Paul and Simon Kersberg, who were brothers, were in the Mossad. Um, 
the NYPD and the and New York uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force didn't want to let these people go, but they were forced by two unnamed senators. Can't I don't know who their names were with Alan Dershowitz acting as a mediator between them in pushing these people, uh, forcing them to release them. And they were, they were released after a while. But Dominic Souter fled, fled the company, uh, fled the United States to Israel one week prior to 9-11. And he, they left the moving system, the moving company there. They, I mean, they left their computers, the furniture there. They left everything there. But what I'm trying to get is if, if you're, if people, there are people out there saying, oh, the Israelis weren't involved. This is, this is mainly by the debunkers. Debunkers don't believe that the Israeli apparatus were intimately involved with the hijack. That's where I come in and say I disagree with them because I'm not a debunker. And I get in a lot of trouble with them for, for, for advocating this. But, the, I mean, the, it's not speculation. What I'm saying, I don't want people to believe me. I want people to specifically take the points I'm trying to say and you research them for themselves because it's, it's, on, it's not like I'm underneath a, a garage getting this information. This is open source information. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, you can get this through the National Archive, through any website whatsoever, but you just have to do the necessary information and put the pieces together because you can. And you can see that the Israeli operatives, Israeli intelligence, along with U.S. intelligence, were following these hijackers around. I've always said that with 9-11, the operation was constructed by Arabs, but hijacked by Israeli and U.S. intelligence. Right. right. Okay. So the final point on my bullet point list um it's sort of two in one okay um it's the commission report and the wider media reporting on 9-11 so really i'm asking about how 9-11 was looked into and whether you feel it was satisfactory both in terms of the commission um and and the, the wider mainstream media and clearly you don't because you've done your own investigation but why it wasn't satisfactory i think we've touched upon earlier that this fact that still seems incredible to me that uh, the bush administration either didn't want any sort of substantial investigation to begin with or wanted a very limited investigation that victims family members had to push and push hard for the investigation and then weren't satisfied with it and then with the media um, there's a particular question that's on my mind, okay, in addressing the questions of what we're dealing with, cover-up conspiracy, what are we dealing with? Um, it was a point Jonathan Kay made, thank you for reminding me of his name, that, um, and a point a lot of people have made, that you can't get away with a conspiracy in a country like the United States. You can do it in Iran, you can do it in North Korea, but not in the United States because this is open and free media. Okay, and what I think about that is if you can demonstrate that the media didn't report on a cover-up, then why would you then believe that um, you couldn't get away with the conspiracy? Because if they don't pick up on cover-ups, okay? Right. And I think it's true that um, the media, it, it seems to be open to some extent. Like, take, for example, um, Paul Thompson, who wrote the, the, the timeline of the event, this very famous, very good book on 9-11. He took all that information from the media, okay? So there is a lot in the media about 9-11, a lot of really valuable stuff. But I think, I'm sort of paraphrasing what he said here, that it's, it's presented in sort of a disconnected, all over the place way. Uh, it's, there's an interesting small article on page 27, which relates to something that was on the news at three in the morning last Tuesday, that people can't put it together. So his job was to construct a narrative. Um, so with those kind of points in mind, what do you think about that? How 9-11 how has been presented to the US population? and the wider world and whether there's any value in it or whether there's a lot more to be done. 
Yeah, let's go with the former, the 9-11 Commission Report. Yeah. Um, I mean, e look, I, even right off the bat, I mean, as soon as the report was published, I mean, Max Cleland, who was a part of the commission, actually left. He was the only commission member that actually left. And he states later on in numerous uh, news interviews, he states that, um, that there was a cover-up right away. He says that the uh, State Department was very, wasn't very forthcoming with information at all. After the report was released um, through uh, other meter narratives, I, I mean, after the report was released, Kane and Hamilton had to make this presentation that it was a large-scale investigation and there was millions of uh, files that was released and they had thousands, tens of thousands of views. That, that much is true. But later on, Lee Hamilton states that, um, that it's incomplete, that uh, their hands were tied also by the State Department. Now, what people don't realize is that the commission was also administrated by uh, a, a, a blowhorn of the State Department, Philip Zelikow, who had a direct close relationship with uh, Condoleezza Rice. So because you have this like this all-seeing eye above this commission, who was supposed to be the, the, the investigative, the official narrative of 9-11, but they really aren't. It's Philip Zelikow. Zelikow controls the information. He controls what's to be released, what's to be investigated. And there are certain instances. I think um, uh, Roger Day, who's a, a commission member, I, I can't remember off the bat, there was another one who complained that um, they were being like, there was a watchful eye over their shoulder about what, um, what was to be investigated, what was not. Um, I mean, you could look at the uh, the memorandum for the records, I and mean, there's number of issue, a number number of uh, interviews that were uh, fully redacted. And one of them is Thomas uh, Thomas uh, Thomas Drake of the NSA, um, who had to hold his interview behind closed doors. It wasn't even public. It's still not public to this day. Uh, but he comes out later. He states that um, he also uh, was interviewed by the Joint Housing Commission. That public testimony is never uh, implied. Schaefer, Anthony Schaefer, actually states um, that he had a behind-the-doors meeting with Lee Hamilton and um, Thomas Keene. They took his uh, information, but they didn't publish it in 9-11. I mean, I could go on and on and on with uh, high-level um, officials within the U.S. government that their information is not public. I mean, a lot of people know that George Bush and Cheney, they had their interviews, and was and there was no stenographer there. They had to write down on paper. That paper was absconded by the Secret Service. So who knows what was being said behind closed doors? Why did they say it? Um, we don't know. But but Bush actually addresses this in a um, 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 in a White House in a media interview, and some reporter actually had the guts to actually state that um, why did you have the meeting behind closed doors? And he says, um, I spoke to you off camera. You know why? And he dismisses him. But it's never reported by the media. Now, of course, regarding the media, um, you're not going to have CNN or Fox or MSNBC or major, you know, the major conglomerate uh, organizations um, regarding the finer details of 9-11. It's absurd. I mean, as early as 2002, 2003, um, you had Bill O'Reilly, you had um, Shane uh, 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 Matthews, you had uh, all these people, all these talking heads, regurgitating the State Department narrative, uh, 19 hijackers um, hijacking four planes and crashing them. We had to blame um, Osama bin Laden, which was absurd because Osama bin Laden, uh, you know, there's an FBI, of course, you're familiar that the FBI couldn't implicate him with mm. the, uh, and of course, the, 
he didn't operate on 11 Oak Street. It was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And at that time, nobody really knew who he was until it was too late. But regarding blaming somebody, I mean, they had to reassure the American populace that there was this evil entity that's out there. And almost like a, a will-of-the-wisp kind of character that this, this nameless, this faceless thing that's always out there, he's a threat. And we have to always have to keep him alive. And he's always out there. He's a threat. And we have to go on the offense. Not the defense, but the offense. We have to go get him. And right away, we went to the war with Afghanistan. We went to the war with Iraq. But any real research works to store, we should have went right after Saudi Arabia. We should have went right into uh, Pakistan. We, we should have went right to the United Arab Emirates. Because these are where the countries are where the operatives live, where the orchestrated planning, where the funding directly came from. And, you know, but with the media, you're not going to get honest answer. I mean, honest answer. I mean, at this point, uh, the only good thing I like about Trump, and I'm not a Republican or a Democrat, but the good thing about Trump was, he, you know, he's the only president to say, hey, the media's fake. So, yeah. but the, you know, but I don't like Trump. I think he's a, a blowhard, but uh, it's, that's sure. an embarrassment all to itself. I, 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 have to, I have to almost like apologize to people abroad and say, hey, you know, I'm sorry that this is going on. But on a, serious, on a much more serious note, the State Department, in a way, controls the narratives with, with the, um, the, the media itself. They don't own the media, but there's, a, there's six like, major corporations that have like, direct links, even with the Pentagon. Um, but the, you know, their, their funding comes from the State Department and these major corporations. That's why we need a more independent media. And we've had, we have certain, but they're not. When it comes to the general public of the United States, they beholden to the media. It's unfortunate, but. Um, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm an independent. I don't vote. Um, mm -hmm. I'm very nonpartisan when it comes to um, just politics in general. I don't believe that there's a Democrat, Republican. Most people adhere to these properties. And I think this divisive mentality is what's helping them not fully investigate like uh, an event like 9-11 further. Because 9-11, I wish I could tell you, and I wish I could tell anybody, I can explain 9-11 in five to ten minutes. I can't. And that, because I would be shortchanging you. Um, yeah. And I don't want to give you the narrative of like, of the debunker side or the State Department side. There's much more involved. And that's okay. what, I, I think that's what, I think that's the problem regarding the commission report, that they're unfinished, that a lot of people um, couldn't report fully in general because the information they were getting was either incomplete or they, what they were going to do, investigate, they weren't allowed. And with the media, they're just going by what the State Department really tells them. Okay, L let me sort of move to the finish with a couple of more slightly philosophical questions, if sure. I may. Yeah, no. um, what you sort of alluded to there, of not being able to explain 9-11 in 10 minutes, okay? What I noticed is you, you're not claiming that you can explain 9-11 at all in, in totality, which I think is where a lot of the more conspiratorial literature on this lunges to, okay? Um, and I think what we're seeing on 9-11 is an event that when you pull back the curtain, it's not explicable, okay? We, there's this simple narrative that is presented to us as an explanation, and that falls apart. And then people are left with this gaping hole in their worldview, and they're not in Kansas anymore, and they don't know where they are, right? Yeah. And there's all this stuff that floods in where, and you know, from, conspiracies that have been going on since Babylon to conspiracies that arise in the 19th century around, um, you know, the, the round circle groups and people are 
um, looking at the Rockefeller Foundations and the New World Order, and it, it plays right into all this stuff. Um, so I want to ask, how have you coped with that challenge to your own, you know, it, any pre-existing worldview you had and how it shifted and where it's come to rest and, and how you cope with that um, uncertainty, say, in maintaining that sense of uncertainty? Or, or do you feel you've developed a wider picture of, okay, the world is working like this? What, what's that like for you? Uh, wow, what a question. Um, <laughs> I, I would, I'll tell you this much, though. When I started really invigorating with 9-11, and I, I'd say from 2011 forward, I was a, a generally, uh, I'd say right on the border between pessimism and optimism. I will tell you now, I'm a full-blown hopeless pessimist. Where, and, and I don't, that's my anomaly. That's when people, I, I, I don't want to give off this negative connotation that if you dig, dig further with 9-11, you'll become like me. No, that's just me. And the reason why I am this way is because my experiences with 9-11 in general, talking about it, experiencing it, and learning about more information as I come, and to this day, I, that's why I always call myself a student of 9-11, not an expert by any means whatsoever. Um, as a student of 9-11, I'm learning more and more each day. And I learn even from the bunkers and truth to themselves, believe it or not. But the more I learn, the more depressing it, it just becomes because of the systematic abuse purported by the intelligence apparatus, purported by the government apparatus, purported by the, the military apparatus, in allowing these uh, events to take shape and then benefit, not concocting it, so to speak, but not even preventing it. Like 9-11 is a great example of that. I mean, they knew what was coming and they allowed it. Not every, I'm not talking about on the general, I'm not blaming everybody within the government. I'm talking about certain elements within the government, within the military, within government, especially within the uh, intelligence apparatus, allowed this to happen. I mean, it's, it's not a conspiracy to believe that. On the flip side of that coin, my, also my pessimism derives from the conspiratorialists that hijacked the truth movement that have created the conspiracies, these fantastical scenarios that have blanketed the actual conspiracy. So what, they, what they've done is, and I've always said to people, you don't need to add any more conspiracy. You've got plenty. I mean, there's plenty, but you just have to understand that it's coming from a geopolitical level not this fantastical scenario that they're creating. And, it, and that, is, that in itself is also branching out to a conspiracy. Like, why are these people doing this? Maybe they're in on, like, this, this you know, maybe they're working for the government in order to blanket the government's uh, conspiracy narrative that they're involved with 9-11. So in other words, they're creating this, but I can't prove that. So in other words, when you're left with more questions and answers, that's exactly where the major powers within the institutions want. They don't want you to have answers. For me, this is regarding a direct quote by um, um, E. Martin Schott, who is a, um, 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 a psychoanalyst based in uh, Massachusetts. He's a GFK researcher. He wrote, he penned a letter, and I think it's the best quote I ever heard in my life. And I'm not gonna give you, the, it's a long quote, actually. I'm just gonna give you the short version. He says regarding the JFK assassination, he ran to another researcher, by the way. He says regarding the assassination, he goes, the, the general public are at a disposition where they're allowed to believe anything, mm. but to know nothing. 
Because when you can know something, you can act on it. And I implemented that quote to my life because I'd rather not deal with belief because believe, you can believe whatever you want. You can speculate whatever you want. That's the problem with speculation. What do you know? Because what you can know, you can show. You can act on that knowledge. And for me as a researcher, that's so important because I don't have any preconceived biases. I told you I, I absconded them many years ago in order to give a, you know, a real truthful outlook for 9-11. And I think if I had to give any advice to anybody on that fringe um, of fence sitting of 9-11 where they want to go, whatever, it doesn't have to pertain to 9-11 at all, with anything, you have just abscond, you're, just get rid of this uh, want to believe that uh, this biased notion involving the political, the racial, the, the religious aspects. Because if you're going into 9-11 already having this disposition toward Israel, so to speak, mm. which certain quasi-truthers have, um, you're already going to blame Muslims in that direction. That's why, the, uh, like with 9-11, I always said, with 9-11 debunkers, it's not Islamic enough. For truthers, it's not Jewish enough. And for a person like me, it's, it involves both. A sprinkle of both and there's a lot to go forward but i think people generally want to have like a simpler explanation for 9-11 almost like this campfire story of these children around this fire and you know you have this person telling you the story involving you know the fantastical along with the realistic and you're left like oh wow really but the horrifying reality uh involving 9-11 is that it's really close to home and it involves your country. And people tend to want to dismiss that. They don't want to admit that their own country is involved and say they perpetrated this grand attack and, you know, they're perpetrating the wars overseas that we're seeing now to this day. And that's what the problem with 9 has had this ripple effect that we're seeing that is sure. becoming worse, worse and worse and worse, I mean, to this day. So I think that's, you know, with me, you don't have to be like me. You don't have to be this pessimist i mean that's just like i said it's my anomaly but um just um not have this preconceived biased notion heading into research because once you have that it's it, you know you're already at a loss okay i'll ask as a final question then sure adam given your pessimism what's inspired you to put this quite immense amount of work in over the years and what inspires you still because you you speak with a lot of energy Okay, right. about yeah. twenty. So, and it doesn't. It doesn't sound totally like someone who's downbeat and pessimistic. So, what, what's your drive? Where's that coming from? That's a, that's a really that's a great question. Ed, actually, um, I'm a hypocrite of sorts. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like I said, that's an anomaly, a blame of mine. But uh, I think it was from watching these truthers. I, before you know, I was a false account on Facebook. Just to give an example, I was a fake account. I hate social media. I really, you know, people post stupid things, their dinner or the, you know, where, where they went and stuff like that. There was um, people, I wanted to know what people, whether there was 9-11 forums I could go to. And I, you know, I was ignorant toward that too, even like the 2012. And when I started going on these forums, I started seeing like these numerous talk, like talking about these fantastical, like, you know, Bolin and Roth and Loose Change. But nobody was, nobody was countering them. Nobody was talking saying, hey, they're wrong, or they're just um, uh, pertaining to these false narratives. And as more, more and more I'm, I'm deepening and I'm, I'm seeing these posts, I'm getting angry. I'm getting like, why aren't these people, why aren't people um, 
trying to refute them or why aren't they trying to um, hold them accountable for the fault? I mean, they're obvious false. I mean, you could dismiss them rather easily, prove, you know, hold them to debates. So I started getting into more and more personal on the, on the, um, the viral media um, with Twitter and YouTube. Um, I now have uh, channels on all three, mm. but um, what got me to come out more was I think more of this, I, I, you know, I'm very unemotional, but almost it's like this sheer unabated hatred toward these people because of what they've done. And what they've done is they damaged um, this discourse toward 9-11. Any type of rational discourse is almost a rare find these days. I hate to say it, but you can, I mean, anyone can see it. Hmm. Um, because you have so many videos and so many interviews and so many documentaries and discussions on viral media that just not pertain to like this questioning, this conspiratorial, but almost this flat out blatant, um, uh, like fantastical scenarios involving 9-11. There's so many of them now that branched out, like I said, from loose chain, but it just got worse and worse and worse over the years. And these people get more famous. It's almost like they are like, wanted they're playing right into the government's hands hey look see what the truth movement like in other words see what the truth movement's about they're all nuts so that it persuades the people on the fence which is a lot more than just the truth of debunkers there's millions of these people and that's what they're trying to say hey don't join them you know don't look at them these people are questioning yeah. and that's why i blame alex jones i blame jim fetzer i blame rebecca roth and i i could go on and on and on but there's a lot of these people that i hold and that's why um, even though I'm a hopeless pessimist now, and I think the future is bleak. I mean, my friends call me Mr. Bleak, but, um, um, but like I said, I'm a hypocrite because I do want to do something. And it, it came on the whims of a 10-year-old niece of mine. She actually came into my room and I told her about what I'm doing. And she says, well, if you're, and I told her I don't have any channels. She said, do you have a YouTube account? And I said, no, I don't. And she goes, well, then what are you doing with the information? And, and with the innocence of an answer, just like that, I had no answer for that, none whatsoever. And you could be a smart, you could be a, a brilliant mind or whatever and whatever. I'm not. I'm, I'm just like I told you, I'm just a student regarding 9-11 issues. But that answer by her was absolutely right. What am I going to do with it? Why am I studying this field? Why am I doing this if I'm not going to try and, you know, go forward with it and try to do something about it? And ever since she told me that, I started doing a YouTube channel. I just put up a new video, primitive as it is, with the uh, air conditioner on, and I had a flaring background. But I, I don't care what I look like. I don't care about popularity. I really don't. I don't care if I get a million views or a thousand views. I want people to ascertain the information of what I present. That's so important. And I think that's the difference between me and the truthers and the debunkers and that I don't care about popularity. I don't care about money. I don't care about any of these things. I care about real research. And I think that's what's missing. And I think I want to be infectious with this and purport people on the fence and say, Hey, look, you don't have to be a truther. You don't have to be a debunker. You don't, you don't have to do these things. You don't have to look at nine 11 through um, these black and white glasses. It's a, it's a, there's a lot more gray involved. It's, um, you know, it's not a rosy world out here, but you could do something about it. And that's, I think, what I want to do um, forward on. I want to become an honest researcher as I can and to be as honest. I don't care where this, I don't care what this shows, whether it shows um, a, a U.S., uh, US, uh, U.S., Israeli, Saudi complicity, or it just shows another realm. Wherever that information takes me, I'm going. And if it just shows that, hey, there was radical Muslims involved, that's it. Well, then that's fine. But 
the information shows different. But I'm just showing you what, what I'm about. And what I'm about is unbiased research that I'm not going to be persuaded by any human institution whatsoever. Well, I get the impression Adam's a little bit more optimistic than he lets us know. And thank you very much for sure. coming on and sharing your research. Yeah. Um, I know, just because it's been my experience over the past month, that there will be people who disagree with it from every conceivable angle and a few oh, more. Yeah. So, I, I've been, just I hate to interrupt, I've been called a shill and yeah, everything yeah, else. Yeah, I, I've seen that. And um, so, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll welcome the more reasonable and thought through comments um, if people want to make them. And uh, we'll certainly link to Adam's channel. It's an excellent um, emerging resource. He's now started on, on YouTube and, and the other platforms. And any other links that um, he or I feel are relevant for, for what we've spoken about. And um, sure. thank you. Thank you very much, Adam. No, listen, th thank you very much for having me on. I, I enjoyed discussing. I want to be a little bit more open with people and I don't care why I talk and stuff like that. But um, if you want to have me on again, I will. Would be delighted to, would be delighted to. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot that I didn't touch on today that I'd love to ask you about from all sorts of different angles. Um, so yeah, would be delighted to do that. Right, just to add, just to add also too, I had, a, I had an interview uh, two days ago and it was for two hours. And I told the guy even afterwards, because um, I spoke for the majority of two hours and I said, I didn't even get into a lot of things I want to talk about. So that's why when I say 9-11 isn't discussed in five, 10 minutes, I, there's a lot. I mean, we didn't cover it. There was yeah, a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But thank you. I can't thank you enough for having me on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really, thank you.